Support for In a City Like Yours comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Listen up. Untrimmed pubes are a thing of the past. It's time to gear up and get yourself the gift of shaving this holiday season. I'm talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. This revolutionary company, Manscaped, has redesigned the electric trimmer. It's also waterproof so you can use it in the shower. The Lawnmower 2.0 comes inside the perfect package, which makes it the perfect gift this holiday season. Tis the season to manscape, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, your friends, the best gift of all, the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. That's B-I-G-H-E-A-D-S. This is a call to action, fellas. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code BIGHEADS. Clean up your nuts and make Santa proud this year. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Michael tells a heart-wrenching story of the birth of his first child and how it changed his life. He also discusses his film career and his current and upcoming projects, all of which center around a famous Western outlaw. Here is Michael's story. Uh, my name is Michael Anthony Giudicisi, and uh, I'm calling in from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I've been uh, in Albuquerque for the past 23 years, but uh, was born and raised on the East Coast in northern New Jersey, uh, in the uh, land of the Sopranos. <laughs> and uh, I've had a couple of life-changing events uh, in my life, and, and both of them happened kind of uh, more recently, a lot later in life. But I was born and raised you know, in a uh, Italian-American community uh, amongst other people that were just like me. And uh, my entire family, my mother came over from Italy at the end of World War II. My father's father came here uh, before that. And so uh, we didn't have a lot of roots here 
but uh, I had a, a very average, very regular childhood. Uh, really the problem or the challenge for me came after high school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I um, didn't really have much of a direction. I got involved in music a little bit and uh, I just kind of kicked around at odd jobs here or there. But I was uh, what I would call, uh, in fact, I have called myself kind of a miserable bastard. That's about the best way I could describe the way that I lived most of my adult life, at least while I was um, living in New Jersey. I was uninspired, unmotivated. I uh, had jobs that didn't pay very much, and I probably didn't even deserve to get paid whatever that little bit was that they paid me. I always looked for someone, something that was causing me problems. Like, it was never me. It was never the guy in the mirror that was the cause of my own problems. It was somebody else. It was my boss. It was the guy that made my sandwich wrong at the deli. It was the guy that cut me off in traffic. Uh, it was the people that didn't realize how brilliant I was. And I look back now and think, would I have, <clears throat> pardon me, would I have even wanted to be friends with me? And there's no way. I would not have been friends with myself for the guy I was 20 years ago or so. Um, I used to uh, buy a ticket. I think the, the pick six in New Jersey happened on Wednesday and Saturday night. And uh, I'd go buy one ticket each. So a dollar on Wednesday and a dollar on Saturday. And I would look at the, I'd look you know, on the TV at, or in the newspaper at what the payout was. So it was a million and a half or two million or whatever it was. And then I would, that would give me like three days of license to dream what I was going to do when I won the money. And I wouldn't have to work anymore. I wouldn't have to have these crappy bosses that didn't appreciate me anymore. I wouldn't have to worry about uh, paying the bills anymore. And I would divide them. I'd figure out how much in taxes. I'd give a little bit to my family. And that was my entire life was just waiting for something, someone, to come and take me out of this life that I thought had been thrust upon me. Um, I didn't really realize at the time anyway that this was the life I created nope nobody nobody created it for me I created it for myself and so I, I kind of lived this way day to day worked got married um, bought a house struggled to pay the bills it was a good Friday if uh, my wife and I had gotten paid and I had paid all the bills and there was enough left over for a pizza like that was a good that uh, was a good outcome. And there was like no savings, nothing. Uh, and so I continued on and my wife got uh, pregnant uh, late in 1995 with what would be our first child. And I realized at the time I'd made the commitment that when we were going to have a, uh, we were going to have a child that I didn't want my wife to have to work. I wanted her to be able to stay home and raise our child and not have to worry about, you know, who's going to watch the baby during the day. And so I needed to, uh, I needed to make some more money. I needed a better career. And uh, so I, I got a sales job selling copy machines for a local company. And I, it turns out that I had a little bit of a knack for sales. I had no, uh, no training at it. So I needed that, but I had a little bit of a knack and things, seemed to be going in the right direction. And uh, 
early in April or maybe late in March, the last couple of days of March, I remember being at the office and getting ready. It was about lunchtime and getting ready to head out and make some sales calls. And the phone rang at the office. This was uh, 95, so it was before cell phones were really prevalent. I think I did get one shortly thereafter. But the office phone rang and uh, it was my wife. And she said, uh, I'm, I'm bleeding. And she was crying hysterically. She was at work. And I said, you need to go to your doctor and I'll meet you there. I don't remember how I got there. I don't remember how fast I drove. Um, but I remember that this was way too early in her pregnancy, 24 weeks for the baby to be born. And so I got to the doctor's office and I remember he was a short little guy, dark hair, had big glasses. And I remember walking into the exam room, the, you know, one of the nurses ushered me back there and I saw the look in his eyes, the doctor's eyes, he didn't say anything. And it was crushing. His eyes were wider than his glasses and he looked helpless. And essentially what he said is, uh, your wife is eight centimeters dilated already. Your baby's at less than 24 weeks gestation. We have to get her to the hospital. Her water could break at any second. And if she delivers the baby here, the baby's going to die. And uh, it was kind of an instant shock uh, and fear, cold water, slap across the face. I mean, everything all at once. So we got her into an ambulance and got her to the hospital. Um, and the next several days were a pretty significant blur. But uh, I remember that she was on heavy doses of magnesium, which I uh, muscle relaxant to relax the contractions. I remember that the hospital bed she was in, the head was facing, it was almost like a 45 degree angle with her feet in the air, really to use gravity to try to keep the baby um, inside the inside the womb. Um, and uh, you know, just uh, a couple of shots of steroids that were supposed to help the baby's lungs, because obviously um, at this point the baby was you know not fully developed and probably would not be able to breathe on its own. We went through that for three or four days, and I remember sitting in the room one evening uh, at the foot of the bed, and my parents had come. Uh, to visit to see you know what was going on and lend some support and um, the nurse came in as I was sitting at the foot of the bed and my parents were sitting at chairs at the side and the nurse went to, you know pulled the sheet aside to examine my wife and she said oh my god and she put the sheet back over and she ran out of the room and she went to get a doctor she had seen the baby's feet and so my parents uh, at the time decided, okay, well, we need to get out of the way here. And in comes rushing a team of nurses and medical assistants and, and doctors. Um, and there's no stopping this now. The babies, my, my wife didn't even feel anything. Um, but uh, there was, this was happening. And so very quickly, uh, she delivered uh, my son. Anthony Zachariah Judas Sissi. Uh, he was born on April 3rd, 1996. 
And I remember that there was a lot of commotion around the birth and there was an incubator that was brought into the side of the room. And one of the nurses who, you know, had, was doing her best to keep everything light uh, had asked, you know, do you know if it's going to be a girl or a boy? And we said, no, we didn't know. And she said, well, if it's a girl, what's the name going to be? And if it's a boy, and we said, well, if it's a boy, it'll be Anthony. And so I remember after they took the baby and put him in the incubator that she said, it's a boy. And she was dancing around the room and they were weighing him. And I remember that I, I had seen him. I, could, I couldn't believe I'd never seen a baby this tiny before, but I, 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 they were weighing him. And I was, I was begging kind of in my own head that he be one pound and eight ounces at least. Because I felt like I could call my parents and say he was a pound and a half. And a pound and a half sounded better than one pound and some number of ounces. But Anthony was one pound and seven ounces when he was born. And uh, kind of shaking as I'm talking about this again. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't even tell my parents that he weighed a pound and a half. Um, they, you know, quickly uh, hooked up a bunch of machines and a respirator and all different things and brought him up to the neonative intensive, intensive care unit. And uh, I very distinctly remember going up there and I had barely gotten a look at him when he was born, but they brought him up there and then they brought me up while my wife was you know, still recovering. And there was, you know, this dark night, the windows were up high and there's the moon in the sky and the lights were very low in there. And I finally got to see my son and this, this, this just tiny being that I could have held in one hand laying in an incubator and they've got it covered with like saran wrap to keep the heat in and they have the heating lights on, but the saran wrap over keeps, uh, you know, keeps more heat in because he has, there's no body fat. I couldn't believe where I was and what was going on. It was so unexpected and so sudden and so um, unfortunate because no one painted a picture that, you know, this was going to be easy, but we held out the best hope we could and he got the best care possible. Um, during the next few days, I spent almost all my time, obviously, at the hospital and um, there was we couldn't hold uh, Anthony right he couldn't be removed from the from the incubator the bassinet whatever they called it and he had too many uh, tubes and wires and electrodes and things attached to him so we could sit there with him and you know could kind of stick my pinky in and put it in his hand but that was kind of it and so um, one of the things that they that they suggested was that he would be more calm when uh, I was talking or when my wife was talking to him and so uh, as a musician I, I went and bought a little uh, you know, portable cassette recorder and I, I uh, got a blank cassette and I went home and I got my guitar and I started singing some songs into the cassette recorder because I used to sing to him when he was you know when my wife was still pregnant and, um, so I, I brought that with that tape with a bunch of songs on it and uh, they were able to put it in the bassinet with him um, and I remember going in a few hours later I'd stepped out of the room and 
I heard the tape and it was like, like really, <laughs> it didn't sound right. And I realized the heat from the lights and from, you know, the covering it had, had kind of uh, either damaged the machinery or warped the tape or something. But ultimately, they had to take it out of there because they said it, he actually got um, too... Uh, um, too excited, like he would start moving around when he heard my voice, which in some way, you know, made me happy. But also, they they wanted him as still as possible to give him the best chance to recover. His oxygen saturation was so low; it was in the high 80s, low 90s. Um, they tried different ventilators, they tried everything, but it became pretty clear uh, by uh, you know the fourth day that he was not in good shape and things were not getting better. There really wasn't much left they could do. He simply was just born too early. Um, we'd been at the hospital. My wife had been discharged. We'd been at the hospital four days and we decided that we would go back to the house and take a shower and get some clothes. Um, on uh, that Saturday evening, which would have been April 6th. And uh, we were there and the phone rang. It was about 11.30 at night. And uh, it was my son's doctor, and he said, you're going to have to make some decisions here pretty quick because he's been deprived of oxygen for too long. And even if he is able to you know, kind of reverse this and come out of it, there's probably brain damage. Um, and you just have to figure out how long you want to, you want to continue this. So I hung up the phone and my wife and I talked and cried and, you know, tried to come up with a decision. And we had determined that we were going to wait till the next morning and see if anything improved, if there was, you know, any hope that, you know, he'd be able to get better. And 10 minutes after that conversation, the doctor called and he said, your son's dying. Sorry. And, uh, he said the nurses are doing a very rudimentary form of CPR on him to try to keep him alive until you get here. Do you want them to continue? And uh, uh, I said, uh, no, you know, it's, it's enough. So we got in the car and we drove back there. And the first time I got to hold my son, they had you know, a little, it was almost like a storage closet in the, in the NICU. And the first time I got to hold him, they brought him all swaddled and with a little beanie on, but he had passed away already. And I'd never really got to touch him before that. Um, and it was, uh, you know, just kind of a foundation shaking event. I just never, ever expected that the natural order of, you know, a, a child buries their parent, not the other way around. Um, is supposed to happen. So uh, it, it it changed my life. And, and, and in the immediate future, it didn't change it for the better. Um, it wasn't a situation where I suddenly became this <laughs> wonderful, altruistic person. Um, I was bitter and I was mad and I was angry. Um, um, I had determined at that point that, you know, it was, I, I never felt comfortable living in New Jersey. I was just born and raised there. But I had been out to New Mexico 
couple times on vacation. I just liked the idea of the space and room to breathe. And so I went into work uh, shortly thereafter and I asked uh, for a transfer. I said, hey, but, you know, you have offices in Albuquerque. Can I, uh, can, can you arrange a transfer? And I flew down a couple weeks later to interview with the sales manager for the same company. And uh, maybe a month after that, I got my little Toyota pickup truck and whatever I could shove behind the seats, I, uh, I came down with. My wife stayed behind as we were trying to sell the house. And uh, I, I moved with uh, my mountain bike in the back of the truck. Um, I had my guitar. I had one box with uh, one dish, one plate, one fork, one knife, one cup, one pot of uh, my clothes. And I think I brought a little, uh, I think it was a Sega Genesis video game system and a 13-inch TV. And that's it. No furniture. I rented an apartment in Albuquerque. I sat on the floor. I ate sitting in front of the TV on top of a cardboard box, and I lived like that for three or four months. And I, I got to tell you, at the time, it was probably the most purifying thing that uh, that I could go through. It just stripped down all the other distractions of life. I went to work during the day. I came home and rode my bike or played my guitar, and I just existed. But uh, in Albuquerque, even to this day, there's, there is uh, a, kind of a long Route 66, uh, old Route 66 that are called the war zone. They're not the best areas of town. And that was my territory, my sales territory. It was the worst <laughs> territory in town, but I was the new guy. And that's what I got. And I used to walk around there because I was just so angry and I had such a chip on my shoulder about what happened to my son that uh, I'd, I'd walk around and if anybody stared at me for a second too long, I'd mouth off to them, you know, what was their problem? Did they, you know, <laughs> I, would, I would look to cause trouble. I was just, I was not a good person and I was not a nice person and I was not a person that I am proud of. And I, you know, I can look back and say, well, hey, you were in pain or you were hurting, you can justify it, but it just wasn't, I wasn't who I wanted to be. And uh, it started to shift for me uh, after a couple years, a year and a half in Albuquerque, because the company I worked for hired a guy named Steve Chandler. And Steve Chandler is an author and a corporate coach, uh, business coach from uh, uh, Arizona. I think he actually lives in, oh, Gilbert, Arizona, not Chandler. And uh, Steve came and talked to our company. We had a meeting. They rented a little uh, hall downtown in Albuquerque. And here's this motivational speaker. And I remember at the time going in with my other sales buddies and sitting there and, you know, looking down the end of my nose at this guy that kind of had a rumpled shirt on and his hair wasn't combed all that well. And he didn't seem like he was in great shape. And I thought, this is the motivational speaker. Like, this is the guy that's going to... Uh, you know, tell me how to, how to live my life. And I sat there for the next four hours and it was as if someone came down and, and whisked whoever the old me was and put somebody new in its place. I remember Steve sitting there talking about the difference in the owner and victim mindset. He had worked as a civilian contractor for the army and they they, they studied psychological warfare and they found out um, that, that there were essentially two mindsets of human beings, regardless of where they are, owners and victims. Owners 
that take ownership of their life and their choices and their mistakes and their successes and they and they shape and craft the life they want and victims who allow things to happen to them and then always look for reasons or people reasons situations that cause that and they take no responsibility for anything and up until that time in my life that would have been 1998 I was 34 years old I had been a victim every single day of my life and it again as as much as the doctor you know kind of telling me my son was dying as much as in that moment you you realize that this is going to change forever that's exactly the feeling I had as we sat there and listened to this guy and I I wish I could tell you today that were um that it was an instant change like it was lightning bolted all of a sudden I walked out of there as a better person but it wasn't but it was the spark it was the catalyst for change for me it was the realization that I wanted to be a better person I wanted to take more control over my life I wanted to enjoy my life I didn't want to be unhappy and I didn't want to look at other people and and wonder why they were doing things to me and over the course of the next couple of years I really did make that transformation in mind body and in soul and uh that message kind of changed my life in a number of ways and has you know followed me through my career and through my personal life um ever since wow um I'm so sorry that it took that to get you to a place of change um how about your wife was her uh journey as is speedy as yours no it wasn't and uh one of the very sad statistics about um uh losing a child is that most marriages a very high 80% plus if i remember do not survive the loss of a child and my marriage did not uh my wife and i we had two other children i have a 22 year old daughter now mia who was born in 1997 and a uh, almost 16 year old son who's now taller than me uh, but my wife and i split up in 2007 we just it, it 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 was such a weight and burden um and i i i don't know that anybody blamed anybody else but no we we wound up uh, getting divorced then and it was that was you know the next hardest thing that i had to to deal with because because i was part of the creation of it and because my kids were involved but it was it's i i would say to this day she still um you know is challenged by what happened then because it was her body and i think she felt um, maybe more at fault because it was her body that did this of course it wasn't anybody's fault um the uh the, You know the the first real change that when I you know when I came out of Steve's class that I wanted to change was uh was my my body. Um at the time I weighed about 240 pounds and on a good day back then I was 5 foot 10 now I'm probably a lot closer to 5 foot 9. Um but I had never I I'd always been fairly athletic and uh, and I just didn't I I woke up one morning and looked in the mirror and just didn't recognize who I saw. And so I thought well gosh Michael you got to do something maybe you should try running and I didn't have any background in running or in sports or anything like that but I felt like it was probably a good way to lose some weight and so I went the one morning I got up and I uh, put on whatever you know approximated a running outfit and I went out my front door in Albuquerque and I ran 
and uh, I would call where I was running to the end of the block, but I would tell you that I couldn't make it. In other words, I could not even run without stopping to the end of the block, and I was probably 15 or 20 feet short of it, and my lungs were burning, and I was wheezing, and I, I almost cried that I couldn't believe I'd let myself go so far. I mean, my daughter was a year old, and she was starting to move around, and I thought, you're, you're not even going to be around for her. I come from a family of you know, heart disease and high blood pressure. And so it was very discouraging. But the next day I got up and I went out and ran again. And the next day I made it <laughs> to the end of the block. I mean, barely, but I made it to the end of the block. And I continued to get up every day and go run a little further and a little further. And I ran my first 5K race, uh, which was really hard at the time, but also really uh, fulfilling. And uh, But running was never my thing. I'm built more like a football player than a runner. And so I thought, gosh, if there was something that went with running that I'm better at, maybe I would continue to do it. And that's how I discovered the sport of triathlon. And I did my uh, first ever triathlon in White Sands, New Mexico, back in, oh gosh, uh, February, no, I'm sorry, December of 1999, December 1999, the polar bear triathlon at White Sands Missile Range. And it was a sprint distance triathlon, so relatively short, five kilometer run, uh, probably 15 miles on the bike and swim 400 meters. But I got out of that pool at the end. You had to swim in a pool. It was in the winter. And I was in front of two very, very old ladies and nobody else. I was almost last. But I remember feeling so energized and so charged up and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I accomplished this, that I was bitten by the triathlon bug. Uh, I went on to, uh, have gone on to do seven full Ironman triathlons. Um, for those that don't know, the Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then a full marathon, 26.2 miles at the end, all in succession. And I've been seven of those in probably, gosh, 30 or 35 uh, half Ironman distance races and a bunch of other ones. And the, the discipline that I learned, I mean, my body changed, my mind changed, my discipline to train, all those things changed within me. And I was able to take those lessons and use them in my business career and in my relationships. But it really taught me something. It taught me that if you, if you want something, if you really want to do something and you commit to doing it, you don't just say you'll do it, but you actually make the commitment and get up and do it every day. There's so few limitations on us as human beings. And it doesn't matter what your talent level is, because I certainly don't have a talent for endurance sports. I'm just stubborn at it. Um, it doesn't much matter what your talent or your background or how much money you have. It just matters that you're willing to put in a little bit of effort and keep nudging that goal or yourself toward that goal each day. And you can do it. Anybody can do it. And so that really led me to the point uh, of, you know, redefining my career. I opened a consulting company in 2006 working in the healthcare industry and, uh, then about a little over two years ago, I decided to fulfill one of my bucket list items, and that was to uh, be on set as an actor uh, for at least one day. Uh, so I got a, a background, a featured background part as a zombie-like creature in a little sci-fi short called Back to Earth. I did a video audition, and I sent it in, and uh, they 
called me to go do it. And so I spent uh, 12 hours from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. in downtown Albuquerque overnight um, shooting this one scene with a number of other actors and, um, you know, of course, the cast and crew. And I've got to tell you, I hated acting. <laughs> I didn't like anything about it. I, I found it boring and repetitive and tedious. And I don't I haven't ever seen the, the film. So I would guess that I was probably on screen for somewhere from five to 10 seconds. And I spent 12 hours doing that. But I do remember being in the, the background actor holding area and I kept walking out the side door and then peeking around the building so I could look at the set. Because to me, I was fascinated by the fact that all of these moving pieces, yeah, directors, PAs, you know, first assistant director, everybody's kind of coordinated effort. It's like a ballet that they were getting things done. And it was fascinating to me. And I thought, gosh, this is kind of incredible. I never thought about what went into making a movie. And so after that, I just determined, because I've written stuff my whole life. I've written seven books. Um, but I had, I had a number of ideas that I wanted to pursue. And I thought, gosh, I might as well do this. I'm not getting any younger. Um, I see that there's like real people that are doing it. They're not, you know, they're not uh, these untouchable, untouchable elite people. I'm in Albuquerque, which has a strong film community. I might as well do it. And uh, I got a good start from a guy I met uh, on that, uh, that sci-fi short named Jason Hill, who helped me, partnered with me to get me going um, to do, uh, you know, my, direct my first scenes uh, and get some of the stuff I'd written into production. And it got me to the point where uh, I, I have uh, put together and have or just about to release my first feature film uh, with two more on the horizon. And uh, it's been just an incredible and exciting journey. I've met some unbelievable people and uh, I've learned, I, I mean, I learned something new or 10 new things in this industry every day. And usually five of them prove that the stuff I learned yesterday was wrong. It's just like this constant process of going, oh, I screwed that up. I could have, this could have been better. This could have been easier. But it's so so exciting and engaging for me. I've, I've just loved it. So I'm, I'm at the point right now of juggling or balancing two careers. I still work as a healthcare consultant with some of my clients, and I am uh, uh, almost full-time filmmaker on top of that. So there's not a lot of downtime, uh, but there's uh, an, an awful lot of you know excitement in you know in, in forging this new career. Um, so we have a film premiering on December 7, 2019, in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Now, most people would never have heard of Fort Sumner uh, unless I tell you that that's the place in the old Fort Sumner Cemetery where Billy the Kid is buried. Or he's not. It just depends on if you believe that Pat Garrett killed him. And uh, our film is, in their own words, Billy the Kid in the Lincoln County War. And it's not Young Guns or um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It's not a film like that. This is a film as... It's as if we resurrected all of these characters, Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett, Paulita Maxwell, Sally Chisholm, like all of the friends and enemies around the kid's life, including Billy, and we got to interview them today. We brought them back from the grave, we dusted them off, and we said, tell us what happened, tell us what you were thinking, tell us what you were feeling. And we got to interview them all uh, individually. And what we did is then we took all those interviews and we cut them together to form the story of the kid's life, his involvement in the Lincoln County War, 
you know, his uh, going on to become really the most legendary outlaw in the West, and his death, or not, again, depending on what you believe, at the end of Pat Garrett's gun in Fort Sumner on July the 14th, 1881. Um, and so rather than watching the uh, watching people act out these characters, it's as if you're sitting across from them at the interview table and they're, they're answering your questions about uh, what happened. And so it's a different take on uh, on the thing, but it's uh, it's been a real labor of love and we're super excited to uh, premiere it here in the next couple of weeks. So you're the you're a scriptwriter and the do you direct or produce? Yeah. So on this one, uh, I am listed as a writer, but uh, the, interestingly enough, this film is completely unscripted. And what I mean by that is each actor, and we used some historical reenactors, people that are you know uh, students of the person they portray. They were assigned uh, if they got the role some study to do. And they had to answer my questions. And I'm off camera and you don't hear my voice. But they had to answer my questions based on their research of the character they were portraying. And I had little to no control over what those answers were. So um, you have uh, you know, Billy the Kid telling about what happened in the burning Sweden house during the five-day battle in the Battle of Lincoln. And what he tells you is what, what this actor believes Billy really went through without my direction. So I can't really say I wrote it, although I did, you know, make some suggestions, but I did direct it and uh, worked in the capacity of executive producer, but I had a great crew uh, along with me in order to uh, make this thing come to life. How about your writing career? You mentioned you uh, have written seven books. Have they been published or are you planning on turning any of them into movies? Are they fiction or nonfiction? Oh, great, great question. So uh, I have written seven books. Uh, all have been published. Three of them you would likely call, uh, I, I'm not a fan of the term, but you'd probably call them self-help books. Uh, I like to call them personal growth or you know personal development books. And I'm looking on my shelf in my office and I see a stack of one of them right there. And so those were really written as kind of lessons that I've learned in life and in the, in the, the changing of my life. Um, from who I was to who I am, and I guess to who I'll be. And the other four are trade books that I wrote for the healthcare industry um, in my consulting career. So those are uh, <laughs> not nearly as exciting, mostly on sales and marketing and, and healthcare, customer service, those kind of things. So I haven't written any stories, although I am working on a novel right now, but I prefer to write uh, screenplays and scripts directly. I. I find it very difficult to write a book about fiction and to fill in all of the the background, um, uh, you know, goings on and make that believable. The dialogue I can I can clearly hear in my head what the characters should be saying, but I love the 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 opportunity to have the camera show you what's happening while the actors are speaking. So uh, I've got a number of scripts and projects written, but um, probably this one novel will be my one and only. You mentioned that you had several, or you have at least two more films in the works. Are, are you at a stage where you can talk about them and let us know what they are? Yeah, absolutely. So the next film, which is slated, and we just uh, just announced uh, a couple of days ago, is called 30 Seconds in Hell. And the subtitle is The Earps, The Clantons, and 30 Seconds That Changed the West. So you probably get an idea that this is 
uh, a film about the famous gunfight at the OK Corral. And it's in a similar style to the In Their Own Words film, this Billy the Kid film, um, but uh, a little bit different take on it in that we're kind of counting backwards uh, from everybody's arrival in Tombstone right to the gunfight. And we'll be interviewing the people that lived it, um, you know, right up to the moment that those bullets, 31 rounds flew in 30 seconds at point blank range in that gunfight and, and the aftermath that really changed the course of a lot of those people ended some people's lives and changed the course of others. So that's the next one. And then the uh, film we're gearing up for later this year, which is a bigger budget film is called back to Billy. And I don't, I don't want people to get the, the idea that, um, uh, Billy the Kid is the only thing I, I write about, but uh, I was I, I was a fan of Billy the Kid, and when you see this film, a lot of the backstory of the main character really is kind of my backstory. Um, and Back to Billy is a time travel western dark comedy. It's about a guy named Martin Teeds, kind of an everyman who lives in New Jersey, goes to work, has a pretty wife, way too pretty for him, no real ambition, works a regular job and he becomes fascinated with the story of Billy the Kid when he sees the Young Guns movies and you know lo and behold he travels to Lincoln with his wife and winds up slipping back in time and uh, he quickly finds out that although he's there for what he thinks the first time is he's well known to all the people there uh, men and women and so he's apparently been back there before and through a a uh, very interesting twist of fate. He winds up making a decisive change in the course of history. His, Billy's, everybody's. Um, and there's, you know, a number of twists in there. It's, it's really fun writing a time travel type story because there are very few rules. People that are dead can reappear because you can go back earlier in their lives. And we've cast some, uh, some national actors, Richard Real, uh, Quinn Lord, who just finished up Man in the High Castle. He'll be portraying Billy the Kid, and uh, my buddy Danny Wynn is going to portray the uh, the antagonist, the prime antagonist of Martin Teeps. He'll be uh, portraying Carl Farber, and so uh, that's one we did a we did a pilot for it as a series, a low budget pilot, and it was great to see it. And now I, I have the bigger vision of how to turn it into a feature film. So we're going to film that hopefully late spring this year, next year rather. Who are you working with in uh, distributing? Well, right now, uh, this, uh, the current film, the uh, In Their Own Words film, it will be available on DVD um, right away, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, premiere on Amazon Prime Video uh, late in January. Um, and so we'll be pursuing a theatrical release for the 30 Seconds in Hell film. And then, of course, Back to Billy film, uh, we're talking to several distributors now because we'd like a wider theatrical release, especially based on some of the actors that we're going to have there. So... Uh, but that's the challenge. A good friend of mine, a producer in Santa Fe, Delaney Marsh, said, you know, uh, financing and distribution is where good movies come to die. And so we're pretty sure we've got the financing part worked out. We've got to get the distribution down and make sure that we can get it in front of as many people as possible.